Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Sophia Dubois. I write every week in the New European on the music scene across Europe and the UK. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello Snowflakes and welcome back to the New European Podcast with me, Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, then please join us at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Coming up on this week's podcast, Fiona Miller on why we're being eaten alive by public schools and public school boys. And we'll put more blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers and putrid pundits into our hall of shame. But first, a few things I enjoyed this week watching President Zelensky in Congress, watching Nazadi Zagari Ratcliffe and Anoushe Ashuri go free, uh, watching a contestant on the new Ross Kemp game show, Bridge of Lies, who said that the currency of Turkey was the twerk. I'm enjoying the UK's work to catch up on refugees, and I'm enjoying the way the EU's come together and responded uh, with unity and strength to the threat of Vladimir Putin. Or as Camilla Tomini put it in the uh, Telegraph this week, a newspaper that took millions from Putin's Russia, the Ukraine crisis has humiliated the EU. Yes, Camilla, of course it has. I really enjoyed Empire Magazine too. They describe Pam and Tommy, the story of Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee and their sex tape as the only TV show to feature a talking penis if you don't count Nigel Farage on GB News. Things I didn't enjoy this week include the slightly blocked nose that I've got at the moment. Apologies if that affects your listening pleasure for the next half hour or so. It's always slightly ironic to sound like that bloke on the old tunes advert asking for a second class return to Dottinghab when you actually are recording this in Nottingham. I didn't enjoy Michael Gove being called a hero for his plans to confiscate the houses of oligarchs who supported Putin's untrue propaganda. What about confiscating the houses of politicians who supported vote leaves untrue propaganda? Turkey is joining the EU. The EU costs us over £350 million a week. We'll have better relations with our EU friends when we leave the EU, which is what it said in the Vote Leave Manifesto. Although, is there really any point trying to confiscate Michael Gove's house when Sarah Vine already confiscated it? 
And I did not enjoy Vladimir Putin's video comparing Russians' metropolitan elite to midges. Although I suppose the fact that he's losing it means that one day soon, Vladimir Putin might be led away to a dark place where he can rant away, but no one will hear him and no one will care. And that dark place in question is obviously the early evening monologue slot on GB News. Now, before we go to Fiona Miller, I want to remind you about a special series of podcasts from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. And if you want to support us to do more brilliant journalism like The 27, please support us by subscribing theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, the front page of the New European issue 284 reads, Eaton's Mess, How Private Schools Have Failed Britain. Here to discuss the article is its author, the journalist and education campaigner, Fiona Miller. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Let's let's start with this fact that you mentioned that 64% of this terrible cabinet went to one public school or another. What is it about Boris Johnson, do you think, that means he wants to surround himself with public school boys and girls? And what is there in the Eton culture, the public school culture and psyche that explains why Boris Johnson behaves in the way that he does? Well, obviously, I have to just start by stating that I didn't go to a private school and neither (laughs) did my children. So I can't really speak from firsthand experience about any of this stuff. What I have observed, though, in life is that people, and very often it's men because they are often in the most powerful positions, tend to subconsciously recruit in their own images. I mean, they feel more comfortable with people around them who are like them. So it doesn't surprise me at all, really, if you have a, you know, a prime minister from a top public school, that he would feel very comfortable surrounding himself with, with similar sorts of people. And I think the, I mean, I've only been to Eton once to visit, but, you know, what you do observe there is that they they are very removed from society. And I think inevitably they leave there feeling special and different. And if, if you look back over the history of the, the sort of nine top British public schools, they were, they were created to create 
leaders. I mean, the people that they thought would lead society and that society would be very grateful to these great men coming out of these schools to lead them. The only problem at the moment is that their leadership seems to be very sadly wanting, which is why I was very happy to have the opportunity to write the piece and say that we need to examine whether they are as sort of, you know, shit hot as people say they are in creating leaders. I mean, if you look at the history of public schools in this country, it was very closely tied as well to sort of running the empire, which is another very discredited concept, isn't it? You know, people would go out across the world with their great leadership skills and this culture of this British public school, et cetera, et cetera, and make the world, you know, craft the world in their image and make it, make it a better place. We don't need that now. I mean, we didn't need it then, but we certainly don't need it now. It's just a complete anachronism. There's, I mean, there is slightly, there's something slightly sinister, isn't there? A bizarre and sinister about the, the privilege of the whole thing and uh, about being told that you are the, you know, the creme de la creme in the, in the old Gene Brody sort of thing. Do you think that b- before we start talking about Eton itself and public schools themselves, do you, mm. I just want to stay on, on Boris Johnson for the moment, because do you mm. think the fault is with Eton and public schools or did Boris Johnson sort of create himself? Because obviously, as you say, the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, the next but one king of this country, they all went to Eton. Two of of those three people seem like fairly well-rounded individuals, though. Mm. Well, I think we don't, obviously, we can't ever say what somebody's personal life, their parenting, you know, was like and what happened in the home. But I think having just finished that book, Sad Little Men, by Richard Beard, I don't know if you've read it, who went to Radley in the 1970s. So he was a contemporary of Boris Johnson's, but a, di- a different, lesser public school. I mean, they may be different now. They probably are different now because there's much more awareness of safeguarding and there's much more kind of p- parental parents see themselves as a consumer and they probably wouldn't put up with some of the things that went on then. But it was a very strange environment. And remember that Johnson and Cameron and all these guys, they went to prep school at seven. I mean, that may be more significant, actually, than going to Eden, because if you're sent away from home at seven, away from your parents, Mm. and by all accounts, children suffer terrible homesickness and a sense of loss, I think it would distort your personality and and probably make you harden up in a way that, you know, lack empathy for other people and and create a shell around yourself that, that means that you don't relate in the same way as somebody who grew up in their own family home and went to a day school with other children went to. I mean, I can tell you, when I came back from Eton, the day I spent there, when I drove back into London, I felt the local private day schools had more in common with the schools my kids went to than they did with Eton, because it's such a strange, detached, you know, it's basically a small, it's a small, it's a town. The school dominates the town and it's not, people walk around the streets all dressed in these funny clothes and the Eton buildings are everywhere. You know, that is totally self-absorbing. It's not like being in a private day school in London and sort of leaving and getting on the tube at the end of the day. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, other podcasts do exist, and, and I did hear your article discussed on an <laughs> obscure other podcast yesterday. I think it was Rod Stewart and then some other bloke whose name I, I didn't <laughs> Rory, recognize. Rory Stewart. Rod Stewart. Oh, of course. Yeah. I can't, re- I can't think who the other the I can't think who the other bloke was. But it was, of course, The Rest is Politics with yeah. Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart. And Rory Stewart made a very interesting point, I, I think. He, he, he said that he doesn't have private health insurance because he thinks that the NHS is great, but then he's undecided about sending children to, to public school because state education isn't great. How does he know it's that? A, What's his experience of it? it I mean, yeah. sorry, I'm asking a rhetorical question because I think that is the problem with it. Sorry, you haven't finished your question. No, no, I was going to say, is, is he right? And, and, and has have public schools caused that? I just think we, I mean, it's a very interesting point. We, that there is buy-in from everybody in society and I, God, 
knows how long that will last for, to the NHS, which therefore means the NHS is a universal service in a way that education has never been mm. in this country. And unless you get everybody buying into the education system, you will end up with people saying, well, I'm not really sure if it's a good thing or not. I mean, we, what we need is for the education, the public education service, as opposed to public schools, to have the same universal support as the NHS has. And I've thought a lot about why, the, why this is, and I just think it's because it was set up the NHS was set up as a universal system, whereas the education system in this country is set up as a hierarchy and it's never changed. Mm. But I mean, it just makes my blood boil when I hear people say that. How can you say that a school which gets £5,000 a head per year per pupil, how can you say whether it's offering the same education, as good an education as a school which has five times as much money to spend on its pupils? I mean, if, if Eton had the kids in my local state school and the same funding that they have, would it be as good an education? I don't think it would be. I think they've probably got teachers who are very, very good at teaching us, you know, monocultural group of students who are all academically selected. Would they know what to do with the kids who are most likely to be excluded, the kids with terrible disadvantaged home lives, you know, the severe behaviour problems that some schools have to deal with? I don't think they would. So I don't accept the notion that they're better schools. They just have a very academically and socially selected intake and a lot more money. Yes. And, and when, when public schools come under attack, the people who run them or, or the people who went to them tend to talk about, they, then they go in to talk about bursaries and how open their entrance exams are. Why isn't that enough? Just, just, just explain that. Because what they don't advertise very clearly, although as I wrote in the piece, it's on the St Paul's website, is these bursaries are available to people who earn, you know, 70, 80, 100,000 pounds a year. They're not yeah. poor people. So they're, they're available to what I would consider pretty wealthy families who then have to pass an entrance test for which they can afford to tutor their kids. I mean, you, it's very hard to pass these tests if you've started falling behind at school by the time you're five. You're not going to catch up and be able to, to get the sort of coaching that a lot of these kids have. And remember, the coaching industry in this country is supposed to be worth £3 billion a year. In places like London, you know, 50% of kids or more are being privately tutored, often yeah. for these entrance exams. So it's just every, everywhere you look, the inequalities are being built into the system. And it's very, very hard for the young people from the most disadvantaged backgrounds to compete with that. It really is. And that's unfair. And I don't know anybody, any politician, who, in, who wouldn't say that was unfair because they all talk the talk about social mobility and equality of opportunity. But then they want to keep the public schools as some sort of special little bubble for their, their children. It's, you know, nobody's got the guts to take it on. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, there've been opportunities in, in the many times in the past, haven't there? And, it, uh -huh. and it's not been taken on. Do you do you do you think then? I mean, can public schools and state schools coexist in Britain if you know to coin a redundant phrase, the state sector is levelled up, or will they? What will one always be a drain on the other? Well, you'd have to level up in funding and and, and, and equal out in terms of access. If they were levelled up in terms of funding state schools and private schools couldn't select academically for their pupils so anybody could go there and they and the school would attract the same sum of money then maybe you'd have a social experiment to do that would tell you the truth about which was a better sector but it's very at the moment it's going to be very hard for the state sector to compete I have thought in the past that one way of, I mean when I wrote the piece I wrote about the idea of just abolishing charitable mm. status but another option is that you make it very contingent on the partnerships that 
private schools form with their local state schools. And I don't mean giving out bursaries because that actually disadvantages the state se sector in a local community. If you take if you take all the most able kids away from a, a local state school, that's not going to help them, a comprehensive school. But if they were forced to sit around the table three or four times a year with their local state schools and hear what their state schools wanted, and then in return for their charitable status, they had to give it, whether it was sport for special educational needs or kids who are vulnerable to exclusion or shortages in certain teachers or sports facilities. They won't want to do any of these things, of course, because it would, it would dilute their brand. But if they were to do that, you could actually see a more viable levelling up at a local level. If you, know, if you went to a state school and you knew you could access a lot of the facilities in your local private school, then that would be better than what we've got now. But at the moment, they, the, the, the way they justify their charitable status is often by either just giving bursaries as I say, to families who've got lots of money anyway, or doing things like letting their, giving their sports facilities to a private sports yeah. club. And this is what happens to lo to locally to me. And then that private company can charge people fees to use a swimming pool that isn't just available for local kids to use. I mean, they also always say, don't they, that people who, who run and, and have been to, to these public schools that removing charitable status will mean that a lot of them close down. Is, 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 that, is there any truth in that do you think i think some of them i mean you've got to remember there's a there's a complete hierarchy within the private sector i mean eton is unbelievable i mean it's got millions of pounds in endowments it owns half the yes. Eton college owns half the property around where i live but there are lots of little private schools that don't have those sorts of private endowments and resources behind them it may shut them down but would that be such a bad thing i mean then the argument is oh you know we're saving the state money by paying our school fees and they'd have to go back into the private sector the state sector and then the government the government would have to fund that. But I think that would be a benefit to the state sector to have those kids back because you get back towards that sort of universalism and that sense that schools were really for everybody rather than the divisive system we've got at the moment. Sure, the government yeah. would have to fund the government would have to fund the extra pupils, but they'd have to fund extra pupils anyway. If the birth rate goes up, they've got to do that. That's just a basic human right to give every child an education. Are there any lessons from the rest of Europe in this? You know, are, are state schools better in... in France and Germany and well, you know, people are always shocked to hear that the higher percentage of kids in those countries go to state to private schools. But that's partly because with France, for example, they have a um, you know non-denominational yes. state systems. So if you want to go to a religious school, you've got to pay for it. And often their school, the schools that they go to are offering a sort of different form of education, you know, like Steiner and things like that. So people do use the private sector, but it's not the private sector that we have in this country because the, it hasn't been historically part of our education system in the way that it has been here. Yes, that's right. And I, I'm going to use four words which I don't think I've, I've said to a, to a, an interviewee before, which are tell me about Finland. 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 Well, Finland, well, Finland did abolish state, and select, state private education and selective education, you know, as it moved from the 60s to the 70s. And it was a transformational, I mean, it's not the only thing they did. They invested very heavily in the teaching profession, you know, even being, a, you know, early years teacher is a master's profession in Finland. They start children in formal education much later. There's lots of things they do, but I think it's widely agreed that their fully comprehensive system has been one of the ways that has helped it to perform amongst the best in the world, but also in a way that there isn't the huge gap between the better and worse off pupils, which is the gold standard that the OECD look for. If you've got a equity and equity and high and excellence together, that's what we should be looking for. And all the countries that do that tend not to divide children at a very early age in the way that we do in this country. 
Although I should say that Northern Ireland, well, Northern Ireland has got a selective system, but Wales and Scotland have fewer pupils in independent schools than England does. So it is a bit of an English problem, this. And obviously, you know, you, you, you've, in your work as an education campaigner and you've written, you write books about this kind of stuff, mm. is, is, is this, the, is this the, the sort of the root, at the root of problem, all the problems that we have in the British, the British education system? Are there bigger problems or do you have to really start with this one to try and, you know, drill down into, into some of the others? Well, I think, you know, it's like the royal family. The private schools sit at the top of a very hierarchical system. So everybody underneath will have to compete, you know, so that the then you've got the selective grammar schools, then you've got the selective faith schools, then you've got the ordinary community schools, and then you've got the sort of schools at the bottom that really are the most socially inclusive. But if you didn't have that hierarchy, people, all the schools underneath that wouldn't be trying to find more and different ways to engineer themselves a more favourable intake because they're all competing. This is the nonsense. They're all competing in the same performance measures, you know, A-level and GCSE results. So how, you know, I don't even know if Eden goes in the league tables because he used to, didn't even do A-levels at one point. But I mean, how if you are as a private school that does A-levels, it's ridiculous that you're having to compete with a comprehensive school in a very disadvantaged area doing exactly the same exams and expect that school to do better than the private school. Um, so while you've got that hierarchy of schools, you're always going to end up with problems within the state sector, I think. And obviously we could talk about this all day, but I will let you go. But just, just one more then. So so I don't. nothing is going to change under Boris Johnson's government um, and this cabinet. Well, what was, didn't was, Boris Johnson once memorably say that, you know, so social mobility was like a packet of cornflakes, the cornflakes, the best ones would rise to the top. That's what he thinks. <laughs> I mean, the only time I've ever spoken to Boris Johnson in my life, apart from the social thing, was when he, I wrote a diary, when he was editor of The Spectator, he asked me to write a diary. And at the time I was making a film about um, school choice. It was ages ago. It was one of the first sort of real, exp- you know, explorations into the subject that was done on, either on TV or radio. It's much more common now. And I told him what I was doing. He said, oh, you, can you write about that? It's a very fascinating subject. And then we got onto his own kids. And he said, you know, the thing is, and when you know, his kids all went to local state primary school. He said, and then he said, I couldn't possibly send them to the local state secondary school. How, how can I do that? How can I do that? You know, that was his view. So I think that is a huge problem in the, in the, in the political narrative around private education is that the, the personal is political and only a, a really probably a prime minister who'd been to state schools and sent his kids to state schools and hopefully we'll have one of them quite soon could make that kind of radical decision yes so that was that, that was going to be my my question was to to, to help those cornflakes on the bottom of the uh, on the bottom of the packet what, what should the the next government that's not a tory government a labor or a coalition government what should they what should the policy be on on public schools well i would definitely start with the abolition of charitable status absolutely and i do think i mean they're very mixed views about this but i do think this access to university if people didn't think they were buying their child a competitive advantage into the profession, into the certain universities and the professions afterwards, because I think it still affects that as well. Well, what university you went to affects that, and that's in turn affected by what school you went to. You just look at the figures for university access to see that the public schools do much relatively better with certain universities. If that, if you you weren't going to get that at the end of your purchase of a private education you might think again and think well it'd be better to go to a state school which is why you know in London a lot of parents move their kids into the state sector for sixth form because they think they think you know that will help them get into a good university so I think it should be I think that should seriously be be looked at and I did a piece in the Guardian last year about Mansfield College in Oxford which has 
an ambition to take 90% of its students every year from state non-selective schools. And it's achieved that. So it can be done. And interestingly, they've performed near the top of the Oxford League table since they've been doing it. So there hasn't been a lot of quality as a result of that. They've still got very smart, able kids, but they just don't come from private schools. Why can't every Oxford college do that? Proves it can be done. And if parents thought they weren't going to get, you know, fast track their kids into Oxford and Cambridge, they might think again about using the private school system and then it would start to wither on the vine. Yes, that's right. There is so much more to talk about, but you can read more of it in Fiona uh, Miller's fascinating piece on public schools in the current issue of The New European. Uh, to get full access to The New European archive, please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Fiona Miller, thanks so much for joining thanks so. us. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And on the back of Fiona's piece, we asked listeners of this podcast how the government government's report card would look as we approach the Easter holidays. Pamela Roberts says, not only have you let yourself down, but you've let the whole country down. Uh, Marion Self says the government should be permanently excluded. Uh, Norfolk Politics says, must stop copying answers from Russia's work. Margaret Wood says the government should be put into special measures and Susan Kempster says uh, cheated at exams, too much partying, which I think is similar to my own uh, school reports. Now, before the Hall of Shame, I wanted to remind you about another excellent podcast from The New European. It's Great European Lives with Charlie Connolly. Great European Lives tells the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites. It is a superb listen. It's available wherever you got this podcast. Uh, so finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, where we put blowhard, backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, and things that get my goats generally. The festival of Brexit is in the Hall of Shame. Uh, a report says that it's a complete waste of time, which is going to cost the country 120 million. Even Ben Habib, a former Brexit party MEP, says that the festival of Brexit is a waste of money, and it's just amazing isn't it that we are about to waste 120 million pounds on something that no one wants uh, no one is interested in uh, and no one is going to go to when it took us six years to pay up 400 million pounds that we owed Iran uh, to free two people and Whittacombe is in the hall of shame as she is every week and this week she writes we should be setting up centres of countries receiving vast numbers of refugees and there processing those with Ukrainian passports and giving them passage straight to the UK instead of risking them being ensnared by people traffickers at Calais and do you know we I mean Ann Whittacombe is absolutely right about that but there should be one edit Anne Whittacombe should have written we should be setting up centres in countries receiving vast numbers of refugees and they're processing them and giving them passage straight to the UK instead of risking them being ensnared by people traffickers at Calais because refugees are refugees and they're <laughs> The clues in the, the clues in the in the name. We should treat them all the same. Lord David Frost and his union Jack Sockler in the Hall of Shame. Uh, David Frost has made a new speech where he peddled the usual old rubbish, and he also said this: "We knew Brexit couldn't be achieved without a short-run economic cost." And he also said, "If the integrity of our national democracy requires a bit more paperwork at the borders, I am ready to pay that price." Well, David Frost is ready to pay that price because David Frost isn't in business, and David Frost doesn't care about a short-run economic cost from Brexit because 
well, David Frost is a wealthy man. It's, it's he doesn't care it, 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 like other people who advocated this. He doesn't care about the economic damage from Brexit and business harm from Brexit because he's not poor and he's not in business. And also, you know, let's let's examine these things again. We knew Brexit couldn't be achieved without a short run economic cost if the integrity of our national democracy requires a bit more paperwork. I'm ready to pay that price. I don't remember seeing either of these things on the side of the bus. Do you? Leaving the EU is going to cost you more money and there'll be loads of extra paperwork as well. They didn't say that, did they? What charlatans these people are. But talking of charlatans, foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Jacob Rees-Mogg. He appeared on Andrew Marr's new LBC show uh, to call Brexit a great success for the country. He said it's a great success for the country. And when told by Andrew Marr that fishermen... Uh, for one sector, would disagree with him. He said, well, it's true there have been some teething problems with scallops. And all I can say to that is that if you think Brexit has been a great success for the country, you are talking a right load of scallops. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Fiona Miller. Thanks to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Rood. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, and why the hell would you, please subscribe and give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. Oh, and please do listen to our other podcast. The 27 is available in this podcast stream. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives is available wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, if you like what we do, please subscribe. It's at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European, and you can even follow me on Twitter at Sangle S-A-N-G-L-E, S-E-Y. And until the next time we meet, sell snowflakes. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.